Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Louise Denoon, and my role here at the State Library is as Executive Director, Public Libraries and Engagement. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this building for people who are here for the first time, as some of our guests are, and for people who um, have been here regularly. Um, this is our third Grattan Institute lecture, a State of Affairs lecture for 2018, and fantastic to be ending on a Queensland topic. <laughs> Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay respects to their ancestors who came before them. The location of State Library on Kurilpa Point was historically a significant meeting place, gathering and sharing for Aboriginal people, and we proudly continue that tradition here today. I welcome and acknowledge um, our event partner, the Grattan Institute, and I'd like to welcome our guest speakers who will be, um, who you'll be introduced today uh, late in a few minutes by our moderator, Steve Abson. So welcome, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. So as you all know, I should imagine, because you're here, Grattan is a non-partisan think tank committed to providing independent, rigorous and practical solutions to some of the country's most pressing issues and population pressures on the daily urban commute are often portrayed in the media as one such issue. But the interplay between growth and cars on the road, um, especially in southeast Queensland as it continues to boom, I don't think it's really a surprise it's such an issue. We've partnered with the Grattan Institute for a number of years and I'm proud that we continue this collaboration here tonight. SLQ, State Library, is an inclusive and welcoming place for everyone, offering a space for open public discussion and debate, both online and on site. We want to inspire possibilities through knowledge, stories and creativity, and encourage robust conversations and the sharing of diverse voices and opinions. And I'm sure there'll be um, that debate here this evening. Um, uh, so, uh, so as we broaden our understanding of the way growth has impacted on South East Queensland, Steve Abson will lead the conversation and explore um, the state of Queensland cities. I've spent today at the third day of the Local Government Association of Queensland conference. Uh, state Library works with the network of 320 public libraries and IKCs and know the 77 councils uh, intimately, uh, but it was interesting to see the motions and debates and the uh, challenge in Queensland of this big southeast Queensland and the issues of rural, remote and regional councils as well. So um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the discussion um, and continuing what I've spent most of the day doing. If you want to join the conversation online, the uh, hashtags, please use state, hashtag State of Affairs and tag SLQ and Grattan Institute. And now it's my pleasure to hand over to tonight's moderator, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Louise. It's really great to be here. And thanks to Marion and Grattan for the, uh, the invitation this evening. Well, when it comes to population growth, Brisbane, Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast and Toowoomba are booming with growth rates amongst the highest in the developed world. 
and people are continuing to flock here from around Australia and around the world. So far, our SEQ cities look to have adapted remarkably well. It may be more crowded on the roads or public transport, but people's commute distances and times have barely changed from about five years ago. And this is due in no small part to the spread of jobs right across our cities and to the changing individual Queenslanders make to how they travel around their cities, where they live and where they choose to work. But the big question is whether it's going to continue this way. And in this State of Affairs lecture, we'll hear from Marion from the Grad Institute and Matt Collins, who's leading the Queensland Government Cities Transformation Task Force. I'm going to introduce Marion first, and uh, uh, the IAQ, um, who I represent, first invited Marion to Queensland following the 2016 release of her compelling research and report called Roads to Riches, Better Transport, uh, Better Transport Investment. Uh, since then, Marion's released more interesting research and analysis from her transport series and has become a regular and respected independent voice in our sector. Uh, Marion's current research involves shining a light on how cities around Australia are dealing with population growth. As our cities in metropolitan southeast Queensland face this tsunami of new people and are trying to get one step ahead, our regional centres face very different challenges. The old chestnut of striking a balance between investment in cities versus regions is also an important part of giving all Queensland's confidence in the future of the state. Uh, Marion's a leading policy analyst and former public servant who's also worked in the private sector joining the Grattan Institute in April 2015. Introducing Matt, um, you know, city deals are a new way of thinking about how we plan and invest in cities, bringing all three levels of government together to create new place-based partnerships. Australia's first city deal was signed here in Queensland in Townsville in 2016. And now the Queensland Government is working with mayors and the Australian Government with the aim of delivering a city deal for the whole of South East Queensland. Uh, Matt Collins commenced as General Manager of Queensland Treasury's Cities Transformation Task Force in April 2018. In this role, he's leading the Queensland Government Cities Agenda and has a particular focus on city deals to boost prosperity, livability and sustainability. So I'm now going to invite Marion to present for about 10 minutes on how SEQ has adapted to population growth. Looking kind of backwards, if you will, and then Matt will follow Marion to present his views on this, plus look to the future and some of the considerations in the city deal. We'll then break into a moderated discussion, and I'll look to invite some questions on a reasonably regular basis from the audience as well. And I'll get back to that um, when Marion and Matt have finished their presentations. So um, please welcome Marion. So it's great to be here in Queensland this evening and thank you very much for coming. It's, a, it's always a different crowd in each city and, and I think it's very fitting because um, one of the things I've realised in doing this research is that Brisbane and South East Queensland are different to other cities in Australia and partly it's because of this notion of South East Queensland rather than just the capital city. So what I'm going to do really here is set the scene a bit um, with, with what I found with my research and hopefully that will help our discussion and, and set the scene for Matt to present what he's working on. And, and the, the underlying motive that I, I want to start with as, as both um, Louise and as Steve has, have said is that 
population growth in Brisbane, in southeast Queensland, and indeed in Australia, have been really strong. So here in Brisbane, the population has grown by an average of 1.9% per year each year for the past five years. And, and that might not sound that high, but it is very high by global standards and it is a large number of people. Other southeast Queensland cities have also grown fast, so most notably the Sunshine Coast at 2.6% per year on average over the past five years and the Gold Coast at 2.3%. And even though Toowoomba is somewhat behind that at 1.3%, by international standards that's still a strong rate of growth. And what all this means is that we're hearing a lot from Canberra and from the state government about busting congestion. We're hearing about everything from big new infrastructure to getting migrants to go to the regions or to the smaller cities to more public transport. And so what I, I want to contribute to sort of the question of whether that will work by talking about this research that goes to the question of how well Southeast Queensland has adapted to population growth so far in the, in the recent past and what that might mean for infrastructure here. So I will focus um, partly on Brisbane, but I do have some comments to make about other southeast Queensland cities as well. So I'll start, um, as Louise said, with my most intriguing and most important finding, which is that despite these rates of population growth, the impact on commutes has been remarkably benign. So let me show you, first of all, th this slide shows you the distance that people are commuting to get to work. And for those of you at the back, you may not see this, but there are two lines there, 2011 and 2016. And they're hard to detect because they're almost identical. The distances um, that people are traveling have barely changed in five years. Of course, distance is one thing, time is, the, is another. And, and this is a, a slide that shows you the time that people are taking to travel to work. And for a long time in Brisbane, half of people have spent no more than 30 minutes getting to work. That's been true since 2007 and it's still true, it's very stable. About a quarter of people spend 15 minutes or less getting to work. And for those people who do have a long commute at, at 60 minutes, the proportion doing that has been very stable over the time as well. So the only place where we see a bit of change is people who are commuting for around 45, 50 minutes. There are more people doing that. But it, overall, I think this is a very strong picture of stability of distance and time in commutes. And it is extraordinary, I think, um, given this population growth that's very high by OECD standards, but this, it, it's not playing out in commutes. So the question that I then had was, well, how do you make sense of that, given that people are very concerned? We, we hear a lot of concerns in all the big cities about gridlock and um, the inability to get around. So I'm going to take you through two reasons quite quickly um, that, that I think go some way to explaining why, why we get these findings. And the first of them is where the jobs are, and the second is the adaptations that people make themselves. So to start with jobs, a lot of people think that um, employment and employment growth are very much centred on the CBD, or perhaps a few other key employment centres. And then the implication is that everybody's coming into one place pretty much 
on the same routes, and so they get ever more crowded, um, and and it gets harder and harder. And and so that that was in a way my mental image when I started this. But this is actually not where the jobs are. So in Brisbane, only 12% of jobs are in the CBD. And Brisbane really stands out from the other capital cities. It's the smallest proportion of jobs in the CBD of, of um, the five largest cities in Australia. They're mostly around 15%. So it's not only a smaller share, but it's a shrinking share. Over five years, over the past five years to 2016, it, that share shrunk by an average of 0.4% per year on average as a share of the city's jobs. And not only as a share, but the actual number of jobs in the Brisbane CBD was lower in 2016 by 3,000 jobs than it had been in 2011. So, um, you know, whether you think that's a problem or not is debatable, but it does seem to me that a critical factor in how well Brisbane commutes have stood up to population growth is the fact that they're not all, the jobs are not all in the city. You can see, get a visual impression of this of dispersed jobs from this. This is um, the lines represent um, origins, uh, homes, and workplaces. So this is representing trips, and the grey dots are the workplaces. And, and you can see here that there are more jobs in the city than in any, any other part, or in the CBD than any other part of Brisbane. But the most dominant impression that this gives, I think, is that. There are people going all over the place, and that's, that is the dominant factor. So just thinking about other southeast Queensland cities for a moment, we did a similar thing with the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast. This is, these are smaller random samples because they're smaller cities, but um, you do see a bit of a different pattern here because of these, these are coastal cities or coastal strip cities, really. And so they have got a bit of a different structure. Um, they have had modest increases in commute distances too, actually. Uh, and, and it's really because people are living um, up and down the coast. It's an elongated structure. And, and so the popula when population grows, part of what people do to enjoy the benefits of, um, of the beach is that they string out along the coast. You see that in other places like Wollongong and Cairns too. In terms of the change over time, the direction of change, which I think we'll get to where Matt is, is heading in his presentation, um, I've mentioned that the CBD shrank, but um, in terms of looking at all the jobs across Brisbane, there's a very interesting pattern. So that, um, if, if the job distribution was the same in 2011 and 2016, all of these bars would be at 20%. But in fact, there's much stronger growth in the outer 20% of jobs and there's this shrinkage in the middle, in the most central 20% of jobs. But interestingly, you see perhaps a bit of pushing outwards from the CBD with that second bar. So this, this sort of pattern is quite like Perth and Adelaide, which have got very strong growth in outer parts of the city um, and uh, static growth or shrinkage in the CBD, whereas Melbourne and Sydney have a much more stable pattern of jobs growth. So that is one point of difference, I think, um, between Brisbane and Melbourne, on the one hand, and Melbourne and Sydney. But essentially, the story to sum up here is that jobs in Brisbane are highly dispersed, um, also in other southeast Queensland cities. Three quarters of Brisbane jobs are dispersed across all sorts of locations, like uh, shopping centres and small offices and construction sites and schools and so on. 
And, and this has been an important factor in why population growth hasn't translated into longer commutes. Because people are traveling all over the place, they seem to be using the existing transport network more intensively. So that was one reason. And I'll, the other reason I wanted to, to share with you today is the adaptations that, that individuals make in the face of, of a changing city. So there's a lot of changes that people can make. They can move home, they can change where they work, um, they can change their mode of transport, um, they can work from home, or they can just put up with a longer commute, as some people do. But I'm, today I'm just going to focus on um, the mode of transport um, and show you a few findings about that. So um, driving to work is very dominant in <laughs> Brisbane. Yeah, and uh, it, and it, it is more dominant in Brisbane than it is. So so Sydney is the city with the biggest public transport share, followed by Melbourne, and then Brisbane is, I'm afraid, some way behind. Um, and actually, in the last five years, driving to work became more popular, from 75 to 76 percent. Um, yeah, so just to, um, it's a little bit hard to see the changes on this slide. So I've got a slide that highlights that to make it easier for you to see. But so the first panel is the five years from 2006 to 2011, and the second panel is 2011 to 2016. And so in the first five year period, you do get a reduction in driving and a, a sort of roughly corresponding uptick in public transport patronage. But in the past five years, that pattern has reversed. So, um, and, and that sort of how, seems to be how these things play out, that um, car and public transport are the main moving parts and they move in opposition to each other. But a couple of other things that are interesting about this, I think, are um, active transport. Um, uh, only 3% of Brisbane commuters walk or cycle, and that is down from 4% um, in 2011. Um, but walking, working from home has increased. Um, it, working from home is increasing in all the capital cities, actually, um, and it's quite noticeable in some places. And it's been a reasonably strong increase in Brisbane, I think, of half a percentage point. What this chart doesn't show, but which I think is also very interesting, is that these aggregates mask a lot of change below the surface. So when um, Actually, about a quarter of people in any in the, each five-year period changed the way they got to work, and and they don't show up in the numbers because they were counterbalanced by another group. Who uh, so if you have a quarter of people move from driving to other modes, um, a corresponding number roughly move start driving for the first time. So, but but there is a lot of adaptation going on that's not very evident, um, and and that is important to keep in mind that people do adapt. So this is where I'll wrap up my introduction. Um, I'm not seeing evidence that supports the concerns that we're hearing in the media and from politicians about commutes getting out of control and cities in gridlock and livability down the drain. Instead, I see commute distances being indistinguishable from five years ago and commute times substantially the same. So that's the, the past five years, and I'll now um, hand over to, the, to Matt to talk about um, a different perspective on where South East Queensland's come from and point to what the future might look like. Thanks, 
some extra slides. Um, thanks, Marion, and thanks very much to the Grattan Institute um, and State Library of Queensland for the opportunity uh, to talk briefly today about some of the work that we're doing and some of the some of the thinking and data that's informing uh, my work within the city's transformation task force in the Queensland government. I think what's really interesting about uh, Marion's analysis is is the way it points to the fact that cities, including here in Brisbane and southeast Queensland, uh, are very good at adapting and innovating and changing. And, and indeed, that's uh, arguably one of the things that makes cities so successful uh, the world over, their ability to do that. Uh, but our question is, I think, uh, just as importantly worth asking, will we continue to always have the ability to do that uh, as effectively? And I think here in South East Queensland, uh, it's in a really important discussion at this juncture. Uh, I wanted to introduce some data that I think uh, perhaps complements uh, uh, the work that we've just heard from Marion to talk about the fact that in the last five years and indeed the last 10 years, we've seen some significant changes in the way that people are choosing to live uh, as well as work uh, in this region. Uh, in the 10 years to 2016, two thirds of all dwelling approvals were in the existing urban area. So in places where people already live. Um, and in fact, more than half of all new dwellings being built weren't houses. Now, for anybody that lives uh, in the inner city near the State Library. I think you only need to look around to know uh, that that change is happening. But we are also seeing some very dramatic shifts uh, for a Western developed city in relatively short time frames. Um, so in the inner ring, buildings over four storeys increased from 36 to 48% of all housing stock in that five year period alone, uh, whilst detached dwellings fell from 30 to 25%. These are significant changes in relatively short periods of time. And similarly, a trend to smaller lots. 591 square metres was the average, or the median, I should say, lot size in 2011. Um, in just five years, that had fell very dramatically to 450 square metres. Um, and in short, uh, I think what that points to in many ways is that for people, when they are choosing where they, to where they can live, housing uh, that is typically closer to where the jobs are is thriving. Uh, and what this chart shows is uh, it tracks the actual dwelling approvals, uh, the bars, versus uh, what the government and local government expected to see in terms of infill dwellings. That is, dwellings that are built in the existing urban area, um, urban consolidation, uh, another name for it. And we see that uh, for every year of the last 10 years, or every quarter for the last 10 years, the pro rata target that we expected to see developed uh, was exceeded by the approvals. So a fairly significant uh, drive towards urban consolidation. At a time when uh, anybody here involved in urban planning, and I can see a few of you, if you cast your mind back to the very first statutory regional plan, which set out this agenda of driving greater urban consolidation as a means to more efficient use of infrastructure, uh, you will know that some of these targets were heavily contested. They were unachievable. Uh, we were told, and indeed we've seen the market now exceed them because people are voting with their feet to be closer to amenity, closer to where jobs are. And similarly, on the other side of the equation, greenfield development, urban growth fronts, often, not always, but often far from the CBD, we can see that uh, the average annual target that was expected um, has not been exceeded by a single local government in this region with the exception of Moreton Bay and Redlands. Um, so, 
some really uh, significant change going on there. And if you bring these together as data points, uh, consolidation versus greenfield, infill versus expansion, uh, and you compare the average annual target of what we expected to see versus the building approvals in those five-year periods, you see that on average each year there was an overshoot in the market, more than 70% from what we expected uh, when it comes to consolidation, 40% under from greenfield. Now it's really important to stress that this doesn't point to an oversupply or an undersupply in the market. This is about where we're just seeing the market go. It also doesn't point to whether we have sufficiently zoned land or not, because this is about building approvals, the time effectively when people are looking to build and get into the market uh, in a house or an apartment or a townhouse. But notwithstanding the evidence that I see and Marion sees that people are choosing to live closer to work as one response to what we're seeing in terms of urban growth, it doesn't always necessarily mean that they're living closer to where they work. Uh, there are other drivers, I mentioned amenity, that can often encourage people to take up urban consolidation. And here in South East Queensland, we like to commute. Indeed, we like to commute, um, it seems we like to commute more based on some of the numbers uh, Marion's told us than five years ago. We like to commute perhaps more than most others. This is a, a data point around the, the, the top 20 intercity commuter routes uh, in, around the country in the 2016 census. Out of the top 20, 10 of them are here in southeast Queensland. Uh, so we're a little bit overrepresented. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is it points to the way that we live and move and work. Whilst 92% of people who live in southeast Queensland work in southeast Queensland, at the more granular level of the 11 or 12 local governments in southeast Queensland, we move around a lot. Indeed, uh, for employed people living in Redlands, Ipswich, Moreton Bay, Somerset and Logan, those local government areas, more than half of the employed persons in those local government areas leave those local government areas each day for work. So what's the future look like? Um, certainly, our focus in my team is making uh, or trying to make the region better, partnering with local government to do it. What do we see over the horizon? At this stage, we know that we're continuing to grow, 1.5 million over the next 20 years, and the current projections indicate that 80% of that population growth will be outside the Brisbane local government area, but nearly half of all jobs will be in the Brisbane local government area. So, an emerging issue that we're certainly interested in is that disconnect. And we know through the regional plan, the land use vision for the future of this region crafted between state and local government saying what our 50 year horizon looks like and what our 25 year plan for that is, we know an extra 1.9 million people will move here. That takes this region to the size of Sydney today. So we need to think about what that means for our transport choices. An extra 800,000 dwellings and an extra 1 million jobs. To respond to that, just to end on a couple of quick points, the regional plan sets up this idea of regional economic clusters, recognising that there are 16 discrete areas where there is a concentration of significant economic activity already. These are about supporting places of high economic activity already, places like the Australia Trade Coast, places like Ipswich, places like the Southwest Industrial Corridor. Areas with high levels of specialisation, significant levels of employment and strong transport connections. And within these 16 economic clusters that the plan says uh, we should support through strategic initiatives to grow, nearly half of all the jobs are in the region there. 
being 16, as you can perhaps see on that map, the purple agglomerations, uh, they're spread throughout the region. And one of our key points there is trying to have strong transport connections because the people of movement and the people of goods is obviously critical to the functioning of the economy. And if you look, though, at how just how accessible those regional economic clusters are, where half of all employment is concentrated, the good news, maybe, is 90% of all residents have access to one of those economic clusters within 30 minutes by a private vehicle. But just 20% of people have access to a regional economic cluster within 30 minutes of public transport. And for me, I think this points to one of the really important uh, challenges that we need to work to overcome, and it is something we are focused on uh, and we are working with local government on, is a real danger of an emerging, I guess, equity and spatial disadvantage, a disconnect that could emerge between where our housing markets are and where our labour markets are. And we've seen that in a very pronounced way in Sydney, particularly in the West, it's what has driven the Western Sydney city deal, and it's something we have now have an opportunity to act early on in this region. Because um, you can see one of those challenges potentially emerging. The current forecasts uh, between population and employment for some of our biggest local government areas are shown here on the screen. And in the yellow bar, you can see the forecast population growth. And in the green bar, you can see the Treasury forecast for where employment in this region will occur. Without exception, Actually, that's not true. With one exception, uh, we see greater population growth than employment growth in those local government areas. Brisbane, the only one where we'll see more jobs than people in the future. But in Ipswich, in our west, we will see an extra 416,000 people on current projections, yet only an extra 65,000 jobs. And this is one of those areas, smack bang in Marion's 75th percentile, people who, normal, who often travel 40 to 50 minutes for work. And so our challenge going forward, uh, I think, is to make sure that we ensure, as we look regionally at our settlement pattern, to ensure that we continue to not only adapt, but to deliver the change collectively that will help people continue to adapt, have access to employment, have access to jobs, and have access to high amenity. Thank you. Marion, um, our audience are probably typical of a lot of Australians who um, you know, are becoming increasingly interested in this convergence of um, increased immigration levels, you know, population growth, and then infrastructure demand. And um, dare I say, as we move to a federal election next year around the corner, this interest is likely to escalate. And our politicians uh, will start to communicate their plans for ensuring our cities remain livable. Um, so both presentations were um, really interesting. Thank you. I explored this key relationship, I think, between population growth as distinct from jobs growth. Uh, and it raises to me a, a couple of questions which I'd probably like to explore further with some, um, some detail. So to what extent does Matt really agree with the proposition that SEQ has shown itself to be really remarkably adaptive? Um, to what extent does Marion agree with Matt's view about future adaptability and investments you have to make um, to achieve that. So the rest of our discussion tonight will be centred around these couple of questions. Uh, and I'll try and examine the sort of why, the what and the how. Um, rather than wait till the end, I thought tonight it might be better if um, we take some re reasonably regular questions from the audience. So I'll invite questions at a convenient time. Um, if you're in the audience and you do have a question, please uh, help me by raising your hand. We do have a, a roving microphone. Um, 
I'll, I'll have a start a question first and then I'll, I'll invite you right questions. Uh, and, and when I do uh, get a microphone to you, if you can state your name beforehand and just keep your question nice and succinct, it'll really sort of help me with timing tonight as well. So I'll start off with, uh, with you, Marion, uh, which is really about the, the why. You know, wh why did Grattan really carry out this uh, research? Now, what's its uh, particular relevance and interest for SEQ? You know, we compare it with our southern counterparts like um, Sydney and Melbourne. What's, what's different about SEQ? So my, um, I was interested in population growth because we hear a lot of wild claims and I wanted to form my own view about it. But um, so what, what I looked at was the 20 largest cities in Australia, but quite quickly I could see that um, the, the five capitals in particular um, ha have more, um, the, it's easier to analyse, or there's, there's sort of more to analyse if you like, once you get to smaller cities, we went down, the smallest one we looked at was Launceston, and, and it operates um, as a single metropolis, but it's hard to sort of then say much more about it. We looked a little bit about people coming in from areas. But one, one thing I did find about southeast Queensland is that um, I was trying to classify the cities. So Melbourne and Sydney are clearly both around the five million mark, and they're big. And then for some purposes, it seemed like Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth are quite alike. So, for example, with quite strong jobs growth in the outer parts of the city, um, that they have that feature in common. But in other ways, Brisbane um, operated more like Melbourne and Sydney. So it was very hard to classify. And, and as I've come to read the, the planning documents for Brisbane and for South East Queensland, I've come to understand much better that Brisbane and South East Queensland are different, that because Queensland is such a decentralised state, that plays out actually in the South East Queensland element as well. And so it sort of made sense to me of the ways in which in some sense Brisbane is like Melbourne and Sydney, and in other senses it's like Adelaide and Perth. Mm. Matt, um, you released a couple of reports, uh, I think last year, some economic foundations plus a um, a really interesting report, that has to one from uh, Greg, Greg Clark, um, the city's expert. Um, is there any clues in, in that um, study or research as to you know, why we're a bit unique in a global sense? Now, are there any clues in there as to why we just love our cars and why our, um, our, our, our mode of tra travel is, um, is so attached to that? Uh, I, it's interesting. I mean, as as Steve said, we undertook two pieces of work. For anybody who's keen, there's a few copies here, otherwise available on the Treasury website. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we released these in May this year. And we undertook a benchmarking exercise, which is one of the reports, as Steve said, led by Professor Greg Clark, uh, out of the business of cities, global cities expert. Greg looked at our, looked at our region um, at our request and benchmarked us against nine other regions uh, and cities around the world. Uh, and he uh, chose a range of mid-sized regions in a similar national context uh, to South East Queensland, places like Metro Vancouver, Miami, Barcelona region, uh, Busan in Korea, a few others as well. Um, and he looked at where we're performing well and where we're not performing so well. Um, unsurprisingly, as Marion led off with, population growth, an area that is really driving this region, is front and centre, uh, head and shoulders above all of the comparable regions. Well, that seems a positive that in that report. And yeah. certainly was identified as a positive right. if we harness it in yep. the right way. 
Uh, we also have a number of strengths in areas like our university sector, uh, our research quality, the standing of our universities. But some challenges though in that we don't commercialise as well as we might. We don't leverage the employment opportunities out of that to generate the high value jobs. And we also, despite having some great universities, haven't been particularly good at driving educational attainment for our citizens either. Um, we also have, unsurprisingly, given how many people are choosing to come here, some really strong lifestyle advantages uh, that are really driving this region. And things that for us living here, we don't always necessarily think of when we think about lifestyle. Sure, uh, it's the beaches. Sure, it's the climate. We also have some comparative housing affordability as well. We also have pretty good commute times, according to the benchmark at least. Um, and we also perform not too badly on measures of green space either. So we have a significantly uh, a significant opportunity in terms of that lifestyle advantage. Mm. But again, these are things that potentially reach a tipping point ultimately. And if we don't plan well and make the right investments in the right way, then we're in danger of losing. We also released an economic foundations report which looked at the geography of the region. I won't really touch on that. It's mm. an interesting piece of work though because it really highlights uh, for us that the polycentric nature of this region, the mm. way that we are uh, not just about one capital core, as Marion has alluded to, but a number of centres uh, and a greater dispersal within the region. So that's really the, the clue, do you think, um, Matt, as to what defines SEQ, this, this um, um, you know, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Brisbane <coughs> uniqueness that, that spreads SEQ so wide. Certainly compared to Sydney and Melbourne, I think our axis of centres centred around Brisbane, the yep. Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast, Toowoomba and Ipswich uh, certainly differentiates us and means we are much more dispersed and moving about. And whilst I talked about the fact that there isn't a great deal of self-containment within local government areas, um, places like Logan and Morton and Redland uh, and Ipswich, more than half leave the local government area every day for work, not, case for, not the case with Sunshine Coast, the Gold Coast and Toowoomba. Uh, in Brisbane residents either. They're all seeing north of 70, 80% self-containment because they are their own centres within a, within a spatial region. Well, let's just, just have a look at where you, you actually put the jobs and probably turn to, to you, Marion. There seems to be a little bit of disconnect from what I can see between you know, planning documents that say um, where jobs should be located um, and then what your research is finding about where they actually are and where people choose to work. Um, so when you put your mind to the future, which I guess Matt's now doing heavily and considering this sort of 25 year prospect and, and a city deal, which you might get to um, soon, but how important is it to really put jobs where you want them or can that just happen kind of organically and it all gets sorted out and people will just be, be adaptable? You know, how important is this? Yeah, this is one of the, it feels to me like one of the deep questions in this field because um, I think reasonable people have different opinions on how much you can or should try to skew where jobs in particular are. It seems to me that um, choosing your job location is not like choosing where you live. You have a lot more um, opportunity to, or there, there's houses in many more places than there are jobs. In the end, people need to match with a job that they can do and that suits them and the employer wants them. And employers will make their decisions largely on commercial grounds. So governments um, have a very long history of trying to make jobs be in different places. And 
I've got a few examples from Sydney and Melbourne, and often it involves um, sort of some kind of giving some kind of advantages to large employers to go to and sort of anchor in particular areas. But it is quite common for when the advantages finish that the employers then relocate. So it's it's not an easy thing. Government, of course, can locate um, its own functions where it chooses, and we have seen a bit of that at the federal level recently. But it, it is difficult, and, and I think it is a different kind of question to where people live. So, so my own view about this is um, it hasn't worked very well. Um, there's been a lot of talk about polycentric development in, in all Australian cities, not typically about different cities, as, as Matt is talking about, but within cities. So the idea of Parramatta as a second CBD has been talked about for 50 years probably, but at this point it's got 2.3% of Sydney's jobs and that's not changed in the last five years. So it, it's it's easy to say and it's easy to have these, these planning documents, but it seems to me that the reality on the ground doesn't match that very well at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, what does this say about our sort of planning going forward, Matt? Does that get factored in? Does adaptiveness become a feature of, of forward planning? We hear about um, you know, the, the uh, onset of autonomous vehicles and how um, you know, our roads may be adapted to uh, you know, get, get greater throughput from use of autonomous vehicles. It may go the other way uh, as well. To, to make pop-up parks is well. Pop-up parks? Oh. <laughs> no more parking I've not heard that one, but, but um, <laughs> may have. So yeah, how do you factor these things in, Matt? Look, I, I think it's really important for us to make our cities more resilient and more adaptive. And I think people are getting much more sophisticated about how you do that. I mean, and the whole way that urban planning and transport planning uh, thinks about these things has really changed dramatically in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, I mean, urban planning originally started 100 years plus ago, as, as a lot of people will know, with the very idea of separating employment from where people were living because it was driven by the industrial revolution and some of the really significant uh, negative health outcomes that you get from living next to a, a factory uh, and being poisoned. So, but we have seen that change dramatically uh, in the last 20 years as the world has changed. And we now see much more uh, emphasis on mixture of uses and we can see that emerging right throughout this region in many places driven by the market itself as well. Uh, some of the most successful places in southeast Queensland that have emerged um, in the last 10 years are mixed-use places. Um, and you can see uh, Shane and others here today who've been part of creating those. Mm. So we do need to build adaptive cities. I think local government mm. and state government don't always know best, but we can't walk away from that important role of planning mm. either. And we also need, when we think about trying to influence where jobs are located, to perhaps distinguish between population-serving jobs, which inherently must be located broadly, uh, retail, uh, hairdressing and like, from some of the more intensive, knowledge-intensive, high-value jobs where you do see really significant benefits from agglomeration. And if you think about somewhere just down the road from here, like the Boggo Road uh, Ecosciences Precinct, that really benefits from having CSIRO sitting together with the state government's climate scientists, um, sitting together with the Translational Research Institute, where Ian Fraser's focused on continuing to cure cancer, so sitting together with cluster. the yeah. PA hospital. So yeah. clustering those uses. 
and then making sure we develop effective partnerships though with the private sector to drive jobs and commercial outcomes too. Hmm. I might just turn to the audience and take a, um, a couple of questions. So we had a, a few hands pop up earlier. Apologies, I think we've got one on the front here, um, just down here. Uh, fourth row back. Just, just keep your hand up if you could. So the, uh, the mic can get to you. Thanks. Just give us your, uh, your name before you ask the question. Um, Howard Briggs. Uh, I had some involvement in the 2005 regional plan for South East Queensland. And I was aware that it was important to try to uh, increase the density of population. My background's in agriculture, so I was looking more at the rural aspects of it. The question I'd like to pose is, though, that I've been really disappointed that we have plans and the plans seem to be unrelated to the way that development's implemented. There seems to be a dysfunctional relationship and it, we need to have some better linkage between a plan which is done by people, often who have their best of intentions in mind, but the development's undertaken by local government who may have different priorities and needs. So I'd like to question about how we go to get planning linked to, in fact, the implementation through development, because the development's really driven by the development industry and not by government or by the individuals in the community? Great question and uh, uh, I probably say a pretty common question to the top, so who'd like to answer that first? I think it's a question from Matt. Oh, thank <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marion. Um, I'm from the state government, so I'll blame local <laughs> government too. Um, it's a joke. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that is a very good question and it's something that you do, um, that is certainly uh, an issue that is raised uh, a lot. I think probably a number of things to say about that very quickly. Number one, I think the state has recently, uh, in the last 12 months, introduced a new planning act, which seeks to bring uh, a stronger voice for the community into the planning sphere and to ensure that the community voice uh, is heard more clearly. Uh, and we have seen that occur in terms of uh, things like the requirement now for councils to publish reasons for approvals, not just for refusals, as one example. Um, importantly though, strategic planning uh, beyond the de development assessment phase is an area where uh, deep engagement with the community is really needed. Um, uh, we have seen the Brisbane City Council recently undertake the Plan Your Brisbane initiative, engaged around 270,000 residents. Um, and I think the message that, that you articulated there was, I suspect, uh, uh, heard by Brisbane City Council who've now sought to change uh, their plan to more clearly articulate community aspirations on a number of fronts. Uh, and I also think we should not underestimate the importance of some recent state government initiatives though around the banning of developer donations and uh, the things that will flow from that. Yeah. I think from an infrastructure perspective as well, um, now, to what extent do we try and get upstream of demand? If you look at land use planning and infrastructure, the, do the two have to be um, in, in synergy and uh, you know, building critical infrastructure like rail, schools, healthcare, um, ahead of population demand seems to be sensible, but we never quite get ahead of that curve for um, you know, fiscal constraint reasons or, um, or other reasons. So I think it's a, it's a great question that transcends across any number of aspects of, uh, of planning. Um, do we have any other uh, questions at this point? We have one down here at the, uh, the front. Okay.
Thanks very much. I'm Jeff Humphreys. Um, <coughs> I'm a uh, PhD student at the University of Queensland, um, in case some of you didn't know. Um, <coughs> I've, um, I, 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 I want to pick up points that both Marion and Matt made um, about the distribution of jobs uh, in South East Queensland and indeed in other Australian cities, and that's in, that is actually the subject of my, of my research. Um, and its planning consequences. Um, I was very interested in studying city limits that was produced by the uh, Grattan Institute in 2015 after a significant research program. And um, there was a very interesting graph on page 54, which um, aggregated the growth in jobs, um, jobs and population across five capital cities. And the data was presented in such a way that emphasised uh, the significant growth of jobs uh, in the inner 10K of five cities. And um, so as part of my research, I looked at South East Queensland and really came to different conclusions from those that you present, Marion. Um, and so that trend was reflected in South East Queensland between 2006 and 2011. Um, 5% of the growth of jobs in the Brisbane urban area, that is Brisbane plus the four adjoining local governments, 45% of the growth of jobs was in the inner 5K of Brisbane. So the CBD and, and, the other, and some of the other areas around the CBD, such as Matt mentioned at Boggo Road and University of Queensland, um, other places where universities and research institutes are uh, located. And um, notwithstanding that we're only 36% uh, of the jobs in the inner 5K, so it was a disproportionate growth. But that, that sort of growth did not continue in the ensuing five years. I don't know if you picked that up, Marion. Um, but I think that the, it still remains very important that you have that concentration of jobs uh, in the inner 5K and if we're here to talk about infrastructure and policy and we're talking about the deficit of jobs in the surra <coughs> surrounding local governments, um, the fact that that very high percentage of knowledge intensive activities concentrated in a 5K uh, and growing um, is at the centre, uh, should, should be an important driver for um, uh, de developing policy. And I don't think that the, well, I should try and turn this into a question. Yeah, but, Jeff, can we just do, mm. let's go to this, uh, this question. Well, I just, I just think the picture you paint of a, of a sort of a CBD that's not very significant, and I don't think jobs in the city centre, SA2, did decline between 2011 and 2016. But I don't think that's the correct um, picture to paint. We still have a very high um, concentration of these knowledge-intensive activities in the inner 5K. And, and that, in fact, will be an important driver in making appropriate decisions around uh, infrastructure. So I have to, I'm afraid, just ask you to respond to uh, that criticism of your analysis. Uh, yeah, so thanks for your, for your comment. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to look at this. And in the research that I did, I looked at it four ways. So one is at the suburb level, or SA2. Another way is at the cluster of suburbs, which is the SA3, which I didn't present today. I looked at these quintiles radiating out from the centre, quintiles of jobs, 
And then the final way, um, and I know people often do it a geographic distance from the centre. We did do that, but put it in an appendix, basically because distance from the centre means different things in different cities. Some are more spread out than others. So all of those are ways that help you to get insight into where the jobs are. I, th I think there's no doubt, I don't think we have any argument about the, the CBD and the area rating out, out from it are denser with jobs than any other part by a significant margin. Um, they do include knowledge intensive jobs and they include all sorts of other kinds of jobs too. Like it's um, very clear there's a lot of retail, there's a lot of um, hospitality and so forth. So all of those things are fine. I think, I mean, the, the bigger question that you raise I think is quite right that in the end you need to work out what is your response in terms of infrastructure, regulation, pricing and other policy. And I think that is um, harder to do because it does involve thinking about what's the direction of growth in the future. But I, I have found a lot of people I've talked to have been surprised that the CBDs are not 50% of jobs or, you know, some very large proportion and, and that's, you know, very far from the truth. I'll come back to the audience in, in a sec, but I just wanted to pose uh, a question um, about this, you know, emerging politicisation of population growth. Um, the public perception is probably that we're not really coping. Um, you know, pointing to the, uh, the newspaper articles, the, um, uh, the, the radio interviews that seem to be portraying this really strong perception that we're not coping with population growth. Now, do people's experience like that really drive the political agenda more than the facts of things like your research, Marion? Are we seeing political decisions made, knee-jerk reactions, on capping things like immigration growth, making infrastructure investments, you know, based on how people are feeling about population growth, not necessarily by the, you know, the facts of your research. Yeah, so, so it's, there's no doubt in my mind that people's concern is real. And um, when I look at what's happening, um, one way I can explain that is that even if um, the outcomes in terms of times and distances are, are very little changed, there is more crowding and, and so it's a less comfortable commute and and it may it may be, although I can't really evidence this very strongly, but it may be that it's a less reliable commute time. So, um, so I have found um, congestion to be quite locally particular and so for some people it can, the reliability is a, is a big issue. So there, there, there is, um, there's, it's, it's not that there's nothing in what people's experience is, but um, since I live in Melbourne and we've just gone into caretaker mode, I can tell you that um, all of a sudden it's all infrastructure and when we're getting, you know, these very just um, eye-wateringly large promises um, to, to build enormous projects that will take 50 years to build. In, in a sense, I think the debate is a bit about whether it's a, it should be a technocratic decision um, or whether it should be a decision as it is now made by elected representatives. And, and often people are very tempted to say, well, you should um, put the experts in charge and let them decide. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a point of view. I, I personally think um, that I, I wouldn't recommend that myself. I think it is ultimately it is a political decision and we do take into account factors other than just the um, the the formal business case I suppose to do 
a proposal. But so what I think is just that politicians shouldn't be so reckless of promising wild amounts of money on the back of a beer coaster and without having done their due diligence. And because when they do make that kind of promise, they treat it as a real promise and the public treats it as a real promise. So it can't really be unwound or it's very difficult and costly to them to unwind it. So I think just a bit more care and caution up front, but within the confines of the system we have. So when it comes to infrastructure, you're talking about um, independent bodies like um, Building Queensland here in yep. Queensland, Infrastructure Australia, uh, uh, advising the Commonwealth, these expert bodies that run a ruler over business cases, make sure there's a, a strong investment case for it to be backed in. But are you seeing evidence of politicians getting really ahead of that and, and too far ahead of that before a, a promise is made before a business case is actually done? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So, so we're just looking at the election promises in Victoria because we've got an election at the end of November. But um, I, I did a similar analysis for the federal election in 2016. And um, it, for the federal election, um, the vast majority of the money promised by the coalition, the Labor Party and the Greens, was for, for projects that had um, either um, been assessed and rejected by Infrastructure Australia or never submitted to them in the first place. So we're having a look at that for Victoria and we will for New South Wales when they have their election in March. But um, the, the really big promises in Victoria are um, a suburban rail loop for 90 kilometres, mostly tunnelled, um, so quite expensive. Um, so that's just that's an idea that doesn't have a business case at this point. Um, and for the other side of politics, they, they also have a, a $19 billion fast rail connection, also no business case. So it, it's partly these very big politicised ones, but many of the medium-sized promises also no business case. Mm -hmm. Very Look, I, I want to get to speak a little bit about city deals because that might be a way to um, yeah. get all three levels of government to bind behind some very good decisions. But uh, I'll, I'll open up to the audience for a, a couple of sort of final questions from them as we get towards uh, the finish time. We've got some, um, sorry, that one down here. Uh, Roger Scott, um, University of Queensland for many years. Thanks, Roger. Learned from a PhD from there though. Um, <laughs> from, I'm from Launceston. Um, two questions, one, one each. Uh, one is the question of jobs being the indicator rather than people because we're all getting old. I mean, I'm very old. Um, but there is a sense in which jobs are getting scarcer vis-a-vis -vis the total population. And we're an ageing population which has its own dynamic in relation to job creation. And I worry that if, if jobs are the only indicator, you're losing something of the fact that jobs are getting scarcer and different and fewer um, compared to the population. Launceston's doing very well out of old people. Um, not, not for creating jobs, but being a nice place to live. Um, the second is to take up on the politics issue. Uh, I was once an ambassador for the Queensland Plan, which nobody ever thinks about, created by Campbell Newman. At bottom, the Queensland Plan is saying, empty out southeast Queensland, there should be half the population outside southeast Queensland, and there's a whole lot of good things that go with that, uh, and it was a very expensive operation. It's now in statute, um, so it has to be responded to, but I think there is that politics which is going to be something one needs to take account of, uh, particularly, I think, in the current environment where you have a, a, a local government in Brisbane which is in disagreement with the state government about the preferences of metro versus cross-river rail. 
So these, these are political decisions. People are going to vote uh, influenced by that, but we need to have lots of facts and we need to have lots of business cases. Thanks, Roger. Well, let's have um, uh, ageing population first. Who'd like to take that one? I'm happy to um, answer that. So, so you're absolutely right. Jobs are, uh, commuting is a very important trip, but it's not the majority of trips. And um, I think, just thinking about what Matt said about the, the jobs that are population serving, I think the population, as, as people retire, will be perhaps more dispersed. One of the things I didn't show is that um, looking at the composition of population growth in different cities, it's quite different. And for Brisbane, the population growth has been roughly a third natural increase, a third domestic migrants coming to Brisbane, and a third overseas migrants. And Melbourne also is receiving domestic migrants, whereas Sydney has got quite a big outflow. And we had a bit of a look, and part, in part that is people retiring and perhaps um, uh, selling up a home and getting a good sum of money for it and going to the sun or you know, coming to Brisbane. So, um, so I think we will see that, that I, I agree it's an important trend and I agree that part of the transport demand won't be commuting related, but I also think the non-commuting related transport demand probably has more flexibility than the commuting related demand. Uh, the Queensland plan, I think it's out for um, comment. Certainly uh, IEQ had an opportunity to comment on the Queensland plan recently. I think our, um, our date for um, comment closes on Friday this week. So it's out there, it's been um, consulted on. Yeah, absolutely. But, but and, Matt, I mean, um, and look, on the specifics of the Queensland plan, certainly that continues to be reported against. Legislation is in place. The government's also released Our Future State, which provides some really clear ambitions uh, for the future. Uh, of this state and the kind of things we need to do to get there. Um, I think though going to the kind of broader point of your question, and I might use this as an opportunity to, to, to seek into city deals, yep. I mean it does raise a really interesting point and an important point and we hear this a lot in our discussions which is how do we build a better long-term alignment and a better long-term uh, consistency particularly around major projects, particularly around uh, uh, investment. and. And I mean, Cross River Rail uh, being a very significant example of, of that, where misalignment resulted in that project effectively being delayed, a critical project for our region uh, for three years plus. We're now, I think, into about our 10th year of taking that project forward. Um, the Queensland Government is now going it alone and investing $5.4 billion to deliver that project. Um, but after 10 years, we've still not yet turned aside. Though we will next year, it's in market today, and that'll double the rail capacity of our network, a really vital project. But from a more strategic sense, this idea of a city deal, which uh, we haven't really talked about, but in a nutshell, three-party agreements seeking to bring together state, local and federal government uh, for long-term commitments, 15, 20 years are typical. Uh, around the big projects and initiatives that are going to reshape city or metropolitan region to drive a shared vision. And that's what we want to do here in South East Queensland through a city deal. Um, it's something that the state government and local government have been working on for a long time in this region, all the way back to 2014, in fact, to develop this concept, to prove it up, to say, can it work here? There's a really strong alignment between all of the mayors, including the Brisbane Lord Mayor, um, and the state government around this idea. 
uh, of developing a CD deal and delivering it, and a pretty shared view of the key priorities. And at the heart of it, um, two of the critical priorities that are going to reshape our region that we then need to build upon and leverage for the full region scale benefit we can get of them is Brisbane Metro and Crossover Rail. Um, and those two projects are now both going ahead. They're both going ahead in a way that complement each other. Uh, and I think that's a really good thing for the region. We want to scale that up through this idea of a city deal so that we can get uh, long-term decision-making put in place to outline what the future of this region is so that citizens have greater certainty, uh, the community, uh, the private sector uh, have greater certainty around where we're going to be. Now, uh, at the end of the day, though, we're a democratic country and that will not... Um, people, can, people will make decisions from election to election, from term to term about the priorities for their region. But the benefit of something like a city deal is it puts in place a pretty strong and shared perspective, which in the current environment will have broad support if it's ultimately signed, as we expect it will be, by all of the mayors in this region, this state government and the Commonwealth government. So that's a pretty powerful document to bring people together, to bring all political levels together to say, what should we be investing in? What should we be prioritising? And what are the big moves that we need to do to transform our region? And lastly, where we see that going uh, is pretty much a no-brainer, I think, and that's why we can get a consensus. You know, clearly the two big things we need to focus on at a strategic level in this region are transforming regional connectivity uh, and driving future jobs, particularly in those industries that are high-value, export-oriented and knowledge-intensive. They're really big areas and that leads to some significant change that we need to contemplate. Time for probably just a couple more questions, just to the front here and the lady with the pink. Thank you. Uh, my name's Anne Tenock and I'm an elder citizen. I don't hear you mentioning housing and um, I come from one of those comfortable backgrounds where we went to university, we bought, a, bought our house, we got a job and did some travel and had a fairly good life. I now count among my personal friends at least four people who are either currently homeless or facing homelessness. The ones who are sleeping under trees in a little tent in wild parks because they have nowhere to live are absolutely clear that the reason they're homeless is because of immigration and they can't even get to the bottom of the list. What, um, what should we tell them to comfort them and what should we do about it while our government is lauding immigration? Interesting question. Um, something that crops up sort of from time to time, different parts of the communities who feel like they may be um, you know, missing out because of uh, people coming in. And uh, Marion, you, you said we've got this third, a third, a third, roughly here in Queensland is um, is not unique, but but certainly characterises our uh, our inflows of people. What would you say to to a question like that? Yeah. So you raise a really important issue, um, and so I've got a, a couple of comments. I think this is. Um, it's not unique to to southeast Queensland. Um, it's a problem around Australia, and uh, I think one way of thinking about what has happened that that has changed over time is that the Commonwealth rent assistance, as part of income support payments, um, has not kept pace with the sort of bottom quartile private rental cost, and so they, um, so it's simply impossible to um, 
to rent if you're a single person on New Start, um, because the properties in any of the capital cities just cost more than that. So, so that's one way of um, that I make sense of, of why, because this problem is quite visible, I think, in the capital cities. Um, it's also because a lot of the public and social housing stock has been sold off. And so a lot of the provision that was there a generation ago is not there now. As to uh, attributing it to migration, I, I guess um, uh, what I would say is that probably the housing stock, um, a part of what is happening is the housing stock is not keeping up with the population growth. But Brisbane gets migrants domestically as well as from overseas. So um, it, it, in the end, it's a supply that butts up against demand problem. And when the provision at the bottom of the lower part of the market is poor. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think only to add, I think that that um, one of the important decisions that this government made was to uh, to to stop selling uh, public housing, which is an important part of the housing market, and is now investing in a significant way, uh, record uh, investments, in fact, in social and public housing. One of the really important uh, opportunities that we're also pursuing through Cross River Rail, a big uh, transformational project, is to say, let's not just build uh, a rail tunnel, let's not just use that to double uh, heavy rail capacity, but also to say, how do we use effectively the government land uh, around the new stations, which is highly accessible um, in job-rich environments? And one of the things that uh, the Deputy Premier, uh, as the Minister responsible for the Cross River Rail project, has said very clearly is she wants to see how we can use that project to drive more social and affordable housing outcomes in areas uh, close to jobs uh, for key workers, particularly, to address some of those challenges. Thanks for time for um, just one more question. So we've got um, two ladies at the front here. Um, most big cities have ring roads around them. We have got the gateway, but to the west of Brisbane, I know at one point I think they were going to build one, but all the land that they put aside seems to have been sold off. So have you got any plans for alleviating the traffic that's coming from the Gold Coast, saving it going through the city and vice versa, or Ipswich, so that it goes around the city? Now, not from the Department of Transport, important caveat, um, but certainly my understanding is that there is a protected corridor for what's called the, 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 uh, the Trouts Road Corridor, which is, the western, which is part of the western uh, orbital road, so that is a protected corridor. Um, so the land is in government hands ultimately for that to be constructed. Um, but one of the really important initiatives though is going to be, uh, as we grow as a city, increasingly we need to make sure we've got the public transport uh, in place that we need. And that's why crossing the rail is so important because it removes the bottleneck we've got at the heart of the network for public transport users. It, currently, without crossing the rail, it's a project Without crossing rail, it would mean we would reach a point in the next couple of years where we could no longer increase service frequency on the heavy rail network, and that's a really important kind of trunk part of how people move about this region. Not the least of which um, is how people will move in the future too, because if you start to think about where people are going to live, and I've talked about Ipswich as one example, but Logan is another great example. Uh, if we can't expand the network over time, 
with new public transport connections, then we simply will not be able to provide the road space ultimately that is needed either. And so cross river rail effectively is a foundational element to allow us to meet future growth as well through the public transport network. And as we grow to be a region of more than 5 million, a region the size of that is Sydney today, the public transport task is going to be really vital for this uh, part of the world to continue to be uh, livable, uh, to, to try to be more sustainable and to ensure that we uh, can move about effectively in this region. Thanks, Matt. We, we, um, we are actually out of time. Um, I want instructions to, uh, to finish on time, as usual, with these uh, uh, style of events. Um, you know, the conversation could just flow on for, um, uh, dare I say, an hour or two. Um, you know, the complex area of managing population growth, you know, the housing stock, um, infrastructure, ageing population is uh, it's critical that the challenge is not going away, and um, I'd have to say, um, I think you're both making some outstanding contributions to the conversations that we really need to have here in SEQ. We look forward to seeing how the city deal uh, develops and um, hopefully gets cemented with a, a handshake uh, at all levels of government. Matt and uh, all these great initiatives you're putting in place have got a chance to become real and create some great legacies. I'm sure um, everyone will. Uh, We'll want to have a, 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 a voice and see more of these uh, plans as they start to develop. Uh, so I'd like to thank the audience um, tonight for, uh, for your participation, for, for your great questions. This made this conversation interesting. And uh, if everyone could just acknowledge our two experts, uh, Marion Terrell from Graddon and uh, Matt Collins from Treasury. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.